If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. The Baroness Whitestone Surrenders. 1809, Willowford, England. The Viscount of Winnesley rapped hard on the white door with the bright brass ball of his cane and listened for any sign that the inmates of the little apartment above the high street shop were stirring. He had ridden more than thirty miles today, his shoulder felt inclined to rip away from his back, and he was in no mood for sluggish service. It might well be late at night, and almost every house in this shoddy little village might be dark, but a doctor must be used to late night rousing, and Henry was a man in need. He hammered the door again, hard enough this time to put dents in the painted wood. Every minute he spent standing out here was another moment in hell. He'd forgotten how unbearable this kind of bone-grinding pain was. If he had remembered, he would never have raced that skittish gelding. He was no young fool any more, with bones that never broke and a body that could take any beating. A man in his teens could take a fall. A man in his thirties could not. What an idiot he'd been to take that bet. Now he was out the horse he'd ridden, the money he'd squandered on the bet, and the once fully mended shoulder that he'd torn apart again. In Abbotsford, he'd tried to drown his pain in hard liquor. He'd assumed a couple of days dead to the world would leave him better off than he was right after the accident but it had simply left him hung over and with a much-magnified pain that started in his back and radiated through his entire body. He needed a proper doctor, and he meant to have one. Whitestone had cured him once. He could do it again. That slap-faced git he had consulted yesterday morning had given him a poultice that did less than nothing at all. Henry would not suffer another night like this for all the world. He'd ridden hard, in agony, to get back to the only man in England he knew could help him, and by God he would see that man this very night. Another hard rap on the door vented his growing rage. He belatedly noted that he'd struck right next to a brass knocker, one backed by a metal plate, which he could have used to raise the house without damage to the door. But at this point he was glad for all those little dents. If someone didn't answer him soon, he would be damaging heads. Hello? A young voice called out from behind the door. Who is it that batters our door like a beast? What do you want? Henry scowled. Was the doctor already out? Had some wife or maid been left behind? Well, he would wait. A cup of tea, a bit of dinner, this little house could offer him that much, at least. Open this door before I break it down, he said sharply. He punctuated his words with a wood-splintering blow. I've come to see Dr. Whitestone. He is dead, said the voice. A moment later, the door fell open to reveal a very young woman, holding a tallow candle, dressed in a somewhat rumpled, plain green gown. Her hair was an ocean of red and gold that fell about her shoulders, and her eyes were bright green emeralds that conveyed fear, irritation, and a queer confidence in equal measure. Many months passed, my father succumbed to cholera, the girl said there's no one who can help you here. Who is there? called a second voice. Does someone need our help? Henry only half remembered the two little girls he'd seen from time to time in the weeks when Dr. Whitestone was tending to his shoulder. The painful surgery and the weeks of recovery had given him many hours in the man's office, but laudanum and other medications had left him more than a little fuzzy in the mind. He seemed to recall a nubile young thing, a slender nymph-like creature, flitting about. Her hair had been tied up in a white molly cap, and she'd always had a bowl of this or that in her hands that she was handing to her father. Her little sister had been there too, a silent watcher, creeping in and out of rooms with her big brown eyes. Aria, isn't it? Henry asked. He pushed against the door, using just enough pressure to force it fully open. 
his eyes lit on the girl at the top of the stairs, noting she was illuminated by her own flickering candle. That would be Sophia. My lord, said Arya sternly, my father is dead. It is nigh on midnight, and you have all but beaten down our door. And yet you have your father's shingle out still, and I see his jars and potions through the window, Henry said as he moved past her. Taking the hard left turn he remembered from his many weeks here long ago, he opened the rear door to the treatment room. Its large, flat, oak table and array of drawers stuffed to the gills with surgical instruments brought a thousand memories to mind. He strode through the room, out another door, and entered the little shop. There was the long counter he had seen from the street, and behind that a wall of medications stored in jars, cans, bottles, and boxes. There had to be something there to help him. Even if it was only laudanum. He must have some relief. In his subsequent haste to find something on the shop shelves that he could use to end his pain, he caused the destruction of a dozen glass vials, and the loss of just as many sachets and powders. My lord, said the girl. She had come around the counter to try and capture his arm. My lord, you must stop this. I cannot help you if you will not let me. He looked down at her. How can you help me? He asked, putting all his contempt at her feeble efforts into his words. You're nothing but a girl. But a girl who knows how to help you. She rejoined. These are my father's medicines, and I know them better than all the world. Please, my lord, go into the surgery, take off your shirt, and let me gather what I need. Henry glared at her. Just enough moonlight came through the windows to let him see her face, and in it he saw her conviction that she could, in fact, do him some good. Looking at the wall of medications before him, he realized he could spend another hour destroying everything he saw, and he would not be one step closer to being out of pain. So be it. If the girl didn't make good, he'd beat her to death and have his way with her sister. That would be quite the appropriate punishment for promising what she could not deliver. Without a word, he left his place behind the counter, walked back into the treatment room. He hefted himself on the big flat table he remembered from his visits long ago, stripped off his great coat, his waistcoat, and his shirt, and dropped them all on the floor. Lie face down, said the girl as she entered the room a moment later. In her hands, she held two jars, a mortar and a pestle, some powders, and a vial of oil. With a grunt, he complied, the icy wood sending a shudder through his head and chest as they made contact. He really would kill her if she didn't help him, Henry promised himself. He would lay waste to everyone and everything in this town. This will feel cold at first, but it will warm up, said the girl, pouring oil onto her hands and rubbing them together. In a few minutes, the pain will stop. Then her soft palms were on his back, massaging oil that felt like ice into skin. Your right shoulder isn't it, she said. It is quite swollen. Can you lift your hand above your head? No, he said. Not without agony. But can you lift it? She demanded. Right after the injury. Was it possible? Henry thought about her question. After his fall, with the horse howling, he'd found a way to get to his feet. He'd been able enough to feel the break in the beast's leg. Had he moved his hand higher than his shoulder at any time? He had. He'd had to raise his hand to draw his blade just prior to slicing through the big artery that ran from the horse's neck to its head. It was over the next hour or so that the pain began. He'd known he was injured right after the fall, of course but it was only after he was back in the pub that he found his shoulder seizing up as he remembered from so long ago, and then the pain that started. Not that his shoulder hadn't troubled him over the years. Of course it had, and it was doing so more and more, recently. But this had been a sudden return to that old white-hot pain from which he had sought relief so long ago. It moved freely after the fall, he said, at last but it has hardened so much now I can scarcely hold the reins in my hand to ride. You came to see my father for this injury years ago, didn't you? She said, sounding thoughtful. I remember. He did surgery to knit bone and ligament. Then you hung about for a month, and he gave you exercises. 
You have it right, he said, his body relaxing as her balm began to work. The absence of pain was pure pleasure, and he basked in the peace and reason the girl's ministrations were gifting him. I injured it again in a ride three days past. Or was it four? I've honestly lost count. Careless, she said. My father's handiwork hasn't given you the arm you had as a boy, my lord. It will always pain you, and it will pain you more as you age. You should never again risk such an injury, given all it may cost you. I know of no other surgeon in the world who could cure you as he did, so you must take great care in the future. Henry listened to the dressing down with some surprise. Not a man in England would talk to him thus, knowing his temper, and for a girl to do it was quite beyond the pale. Yet, she spoke reason. He had been a fool, and he had made a mistake he would never make again. So I need not seek out another surgeon now? He asked. You can help me? I am no physician, my lord, but I can help you through the night, she said. I shall bind you up so your arm is welded to your chest. For a fortnight or more, I think you must remain thus. You must not ride, nor take exercise beyond a walk from bed to chamber pot until your body has had time to heal itself. I will give you tinctures and treatments for the pain, and then you may go on your merry way. Go where? He asked, quite mystified. There is an inn, she said. Just three streets over. You may rest and recover there. Shall I not need someone to anoint me when the pain returns? Is there some other doctor in this town I should see? She hesitated, then sighed. I am afraid there is only what passes for a doctor now, my lord. He alone serves this town and, and half the county since my father's death. If you consult him, he will tell you to ignore everything I have just said. He will apply leeches to your back, or bleed your arm, in an attempt to reduce the swelling. Then he will tell you that you shall never recover. Because I know my father's way, I say to you that if your arm is bound to your chest, and you rest, you will heal. If you do not, you will soon lose all movement from shoulder to fist, the limb will atrophy, you'll live the rest of your days with a withered arm. With a final pat on his back, she said, rise, my lord. But be very careful. That is quite a dire prediction, he said, sitting up. Tis a dire injury. You are a big man, and the weight of that arm, the force you exert as you move it, is tearing your body apart. Do you not feel it? The tendons that tie your muscles to your bones, can you not feel them shredding as you try to work the joints? If you don't position your body so these injuries can heal while they are fresh, they will not heal at all. Instead, they will scar as they are, and no one on earth will be able to repair them. But, as you say, you are not a doctor, he said wryly. He liked the way the light played on her hair, her serious little face looking up at him, the way she did not cower before him as others did. She seemed to think they were on a level, as if she had inherited her father's station just because she was caring for him. And her father had been nothing, just a skilled servant, available to anyone who had the coin to pay him. You must do as you wish, she said. Then she pulled a little stool out from under the table and said, But, for now, please take a seat, my lord, and I'll bind up your arm so it troubles you no more tonight. Henry slipped off the table, crouched down to sit on the little stool, and then crossed his legs loosely before him so they didn't stick up like fence posts. The girl took a moment to move the table back, then she left the room. A few minutes later, she returned with a knife and a linen sheet. While he watched, she began cutting it into broad strips. So you and your sister are all alone, he said. I remember you had no mother, and now your father is gone. I am surprised you are still here to provide comfort to near strangers who pound on your door late at night. Where else should we be, my lord? she asked. This is our house, and the village still has a need for simples. I have remedies for sore heads, sore backs, rashes, and worse. Is that work for a woman? he asked. I think it always has been, she said. Does not every county have a witch in the woods that people seek out when they are too poor for doctors? Who else should they look to when the doctor's blisters and leeches do not heal them? She came to stand before Henry then. Because he was seated on such a low stool, 
their heads were all put on the same level. She had perhaps an inch or two advantage over him. Fixing him with her green eyes, she said. I need to bind your arm to your chest very tightly. For your shoulder to heal, it must not move. Just as for a broken bone, the bandage will make you uncomfortable. Your muscles will cramp, and you'll have the urge to remove the bandage and stretch. That you must not do. You issue these orders, he said. As if you will not be here to oversee my care. She said nothing, eyes widening as she took in his meaning. I assure you, Henry said, that I will not be leaving this village in this state, and I'll not have some pig doctor treating my arm. I had more than enough of that before I first came to see your father, and I've had it again these last few days, he said. You'll care for me. I'll pay you. What will you pay me? she asked. What do you cost? he asked, amused by the twist he had given his words. My treatment will be ten guineas, she said. Two due tonight, and I'll have two guineas a week until I send you home. He could tell by how she said the words that she was repeating her father's fees, and that the money would mean a great deal to her. Of course it would. In this town it would be a small fortune. Ten guineas, he said. A princely sum. The doctor in Abbotsford only charged one. And he did nothing for you, she said. That is why you are here at my door. Henry felt for the coin purse tied at his waist, and plucked out two gold coins. He offered them to her along with the words, but I will take all my money back if I am not much improved in a month's time. No doctor can guarantee a cure, she said without taking the coins. And some of the money I earn will be spent on your care. You are not a doctor, he reminded her. You are a witch, and what do you suppose happens to them when one of their poisons doesn't work? People demand a return of their coin. They stared at one another silently for a moment until Henry smiled. You drive a hard bargain. I'll give you your ten guineas, but I want five back if I'm still unable to ride in four weeks. Twelve guineas, she said. Seven back if you can't ride in five weeks. Done, he said. I always enjoy a wager. The girl took his money, and he saw her hand slip into her skirts. He knew there would be a little hole in her gown, and inside that, next to her skin, a little pocket. It was an old-fashioned mode of dress, but she was provincial and he must expect no less. Put your hand on your shoulder, she said. Use the fingers on that hand to grip hard, and let go the muscles of your arm so it simply hangs. Square your shoulders, my lord, and make sure your back is straight. Henry obeyed the strange instructions, and then she began swiftly to bind him. The first wide lengths allowed him to relax the fingers of his right hand, and the remainder pressed his hand, forearm, and shoulder firmly to his chest. By the time she was done, he could not have moved his arm if he had wanted to, but all the agony that had haunted him for days had subsided to nothing at all. I am astonished, he said. I feel right as rain. Your shoulder was telling you what it needed all the time, she said. It wanted to be still. I slept for two days, he protested. A dead drunk, I assume, she said. But in that time your body was not still, and your arm was flopping about. When a body member swells, it wishes to be still, my lord. Henry had to bite back his first response to those words, realizing that he needed this little virgin's help for the next few weeks. He must, therefore, be on his best behavior. Though, he vowed silently, by the end of his time here, he would show her a swollen body member that wanted to be anything but still. Shall I help you on with your jacket, my lord? she asked. The inn is not so far. I've had nothing to eat all day, and it is the middle of the night. You can't expect me to leave here in this state, he said. I'll have tea and toast, and maybe an egg. You'll join me and tell me all about your father. My lord, I cannot have you in the house overnight, said the girl. This is not London, and we do not keep late hours. Everyone will understand, he said, rising. I'm a viscount, you're a witch. A baroness, she corrected. My father was a baron. I am a lady, a woman of good character. And you will be one in the morning, he said. 
A landless baroness with not a farthing to her name is in no position to drive me out of the house at two in the morning. Do you think there is a man in this town that would say otherwise? Not while you are in town, she said, but when you are gone, the people here will say a great many things. Then I will have to take you with me, he said. I have an estate. You can be the witch in my woods. But for now I'll have tea, toast, and egg. The girl looked up at him. He weighed eighteen stone. She weighed perhaps eight. Even with only one arm working, he was more than a match for her and she knew it. As you wish, my lord, she said. Bowing her head, she led him out of the room, past the front door he had battered for so long, through a sparsely furnished parlour that featured a piano, settee, long table, two chairs, and a rug. Together they passed through another door, entering a tiny kitchen that featured at a small table and three chairs, a banked fire and cabinets. She gestured at one of the chairs and he took a seat. While he watched, she tossed a log onto the coals, swung a black pot on a chain into the fire, and reached into a cupboard for a pair of eggs. Have you no iron stove? he asked, looking about. No need of one, she said. She poured water into a little metal pot, put the eggs in, and put it directly into the coals of the fire using a little hooked fire iron. We cook well enough for ourselves with what we have, and we are steps from the baker, the butcher, and the inn when we want more. The butcher? he asked. He always has a roast on and serves slabs for a few pence more than he sells raw meat, she said. Is it not that way in London? He watched her put two slices of thick bread into a metal frame. As she held it over the fire, he said, I really couldn't say. I dine at White's when I am in the city, or at someone's house. The girl nodded as if that were only to be expected. Over the course of the next few minutes she prepared his meal and his tea and presented both to him as if serving men breakfast in the middle of the night were an everyday sort of thing. He noted she made nothing for herself and he wondered if were because she had nothing to make. So, he said as he ate. Tell me how your father died. He seemed healthy as an ox when I knew him. Cholera, she said. Upstream from the city, one of the farms used the river as a latrine. The water was poisoned before anyone knew, and then half the town was sick. Then it was all over the city, in every outhouse, on every farm, in every kitchen. But you knew, he said. So how did he die? We routinely boil our water. We always have. But when the infection is running rampant. You have a little sister. Sophia, he said, interrupting her story. Her father had died from his own stupidity. That much was clear. Henry had other questions he wanted answered. Is it just you and her alone now, Baroness? No uncle to take you in, no grandmother with a little plot of land and a garden? He asked. The girl stared at him, then looked past him at the window. Rubbing her eyes, she said, all dead as far as we know. I am well able to take care of my sister you need have no concern. Really, Baroness? He asked as he looked around. I am astounded that Elling weeds is such good business. More than two guineas a week, she said, a bit of defiance in her tone. And we are simple people. Very, he replied. Have you a bed for me to sleep in? Her eyes darted to his, and he saw the fear there. It came to him then that the girl had sent her sister to bed and she herself was standing guard over him until he left. The idea that she could stop him from doing anything he wished was completely preposterous, but on the other hand she had helped him more in a few minutes than the last idiot had in half a day. And they had a wager on. He had some interest in winning that bet fair and square, and in having a shoulder that worked as well as it had before. I suppose you don't, he said. You had no trouble rousing me from sleep. The pair of us should be able to raise someone at the inn, she said. The pair of us, he repeated. I'll walk you and your horse over, she said. I know them there. And so it was, in the early hours of the morning, on a street black as pitch, a young golden haired which carrying a lamp in her hand, led him around the corner and down the high street to the inn. She spoke to the innkeeper and his wife, explained his requirements, 
and within the hour he was in a comfortable bed in a room with a roaring fire. Her last office was to offer him an earthen mug of something warm to drink. When he brought it to his nose, it smelled sweet, sticky, and medicinal. And what's this? he asked. One of your potions? I would ask you to stop your jests regarding witchcraft, my lord, she said. This is not London, and they keep to the old ways here. My father was a physician, and he taught me his remedies and simples. That's laudanum and honey and warm water to wash it down. It will keep you in bed until late in the morning. You can rise to use the chamber pot, and sit at the table long enough to eat, but beyond that you should remain flat on your back in this bed. I shall die of boredom, he replied. Unless you plan to return often and amuse me. She ignored his invitation. The innkeeper and his friends also love to wager. Look to their cards and dice to keep yourself entertained, she said. I shouldn't wonder but that they'll play on the floor in order to have you in the game. You have deep pockets, do you not? Chapter 2 Two weeks into the Viscount's treatment, Arya walked back to the inn from her little shop, mentally cursing the arrogant man's willful behavior with every breath she had in her body. She had warned him a dozen times to keep to his bed and to keep his bandages on, it was such a little thing, and yet today he had wanted a bath. The inn, duly ordered to provide a tub and water, had done so. He had pulled her linen strips off with the rest of his clothes, had stepped into the tub, and now could not get out without excruciating pain. Thus, she must come at once to treat him, never mind the dozen or so medicines she had yet to make up and deliver today. Arya found every aspect of dealing with the Viscount exhausting. She was not incognizant that he was a very handsome man. Tall, strong, broad-shouldered, physically fit, and mentally astute, had he been a kinder, less predatory creature, she might have found him attractive. But every interaction with him made her feel like she was dealing with a beast who could turn on her at any moment. The two gold coins he had given her had filled her larder, and more important it had filled her belly, and Sophia's, with more food than they'd eaten in months. They had paid the landlord his rent as well. For those things, she could only be grateful. But she was under no illusion that the Viscount saw her as more than a servant, and a female servant at that. He needed her, and what little she knew of medicine, and so he chose to behave somewhat civilly toward her. But she sensed that, should she displease him or should her treatment fail to restore him, he would hold her sternly to account. She entered the inn by the rear door, stepping directly into the kitchen where the innkeeper's red-faced wife was hurling threats at the scullery maids. Oh, tis you, spat the heavy-set woman in a molly cap. You will find His Majesty in a right snitch you weren't here an hour ago. She was shoveling coal into her big black oven like a miner, and her wide face was red as a beet. He spent more than an hour in the bath? Arya asked in astonishment. Almost two. And why wouldn't he then? she demanded. You know he cannot get out. He would allow no one to help him. I've heated a hundred gallons of water at least. Arya said, I told him not to bathe. I warned him. Tis not a bit of good you've done him, challenged the innkeeper's wife. He says he's worse than ever. He's certainly as much a fool as ever, retorted Arya. But we all knew that didn't we? And with that she let herself up the back stairs that led to the upper hall. Where the hell have you been? The Viscount demanded as soon as she entered the room. He was seated in a big metal tub on the floor by the fire in his small room. I summoned you ages ago. I was in the wood, she said, gathering medicines to treat you. You've done nothing for me, little witch, and I mean to make you pay. She approached the red-faced, embarrassed Viscount, while keeping her face completely neutral. I notice you are keeping your arm across your chest. I assume in that position it does not hurt. But when I try to rise he began. You move your shoulders, both of them, and it's agony, she said. I told you not to remove the bandages. I needed to bathe, he replied. I stank to high heaven. And now you have, she answered. Now we need to get you out of that bath, onto your bed, and back in your bandages. Then you'll be right as rain. 
and with that, she moved to his side. I will press your arm to your chest, and you'll use the rest of your body to get out of the tub. Start by leaning forward and standing up. Do not twist your body from side to side. The Viscount must have been quite desperate to leave his bath, because he followed her orders exactly. Arya, who had seen many a naked man in her time, yet found herself averting her eyes as she helped this grandiose lord step out of the water and move to the bed. I see you still have some modesty, Baroness, the Viscount said as he sat on the bed. A young girl on her own, I am surprised you have any virtue left. I should have had you ages ago if you lived near me. All men aren't like you, she replied. Lie face down on the bed so I can examine you. As he complied, she studied the way his muscles moved under his skin. Moving to his side with her retrieved basket of medicines, she knelt down. Coating her hands in the oil of laudanum and mint she'd created this morning, she started kneading it in. She probed the tendons and muscles of the shoulder, dug her fingers in to feel for any bulges or unusual depressions, then she moved on to explore his lower back, ribs and neck. I was fit to kill you when you walked in, he said. Now I want to make you my wife. A mere baroness? She replied. Surely you jest. Your shoulder seems to be healing nicely. The swelling has gone down, the muscles and bones have slipped back into place. All that remains is to keep them there until they are strong enough to be put back to work. How many years are you? The Viscount asked. Seven and ten. I think that's right. It is, though it's none of your business, she said. Please sit up. She helped him sit on the edge of the bed, and once again averted her eyes from the stirring manhood between his legs. Put your hand on your shoulder, as you did before, and hold still while I wrap you up, she said. Have you a bow? He asked. Some young man you are sweet on. Has he had you and are there little witches and doctors on the way? I've no interest in men, she said, unrolling the long strips of linen around him. I have my plants, my home, my sister, and I want for nothing more. Except for the occasional golden guinea, he said. Maybe you're one of those women who sells her favors. Arya felt her blood boil, but she continued to work. She did need his money. Things had been dire before he'd beaten down her door, and they would be dire again. Selling concoctions to ease cramps, settle stomachs, and soothe headaches was not a way to earn a living, but as a woman she had few other options. In fact, even her little store was considered work for a man. Do I strike you as a woman who would sell her honor for so little? She asked. So you are pure as the driven snow, he replied. I am pure as any maid might be, she answered. We are all much the same. With that, she began the work of sewing up the bandage using a needle and thread she had brought for that purpose. Previously, she had used knots to cinch the wrap, but stitching would ensure it stayed comfortably in place throughout the day. In a way, virgins are all alike, he said. But then again, I might also say they are each completely different. They are all soft and yielding in some places, and they all make little noises. Stop, she said, stepping back. I will not be spoken to in such a fashion. If you carry on this way, you may go to Dr. Sturgis and meet his leeches. Finish your work, he ordered, rolling his eyes. One thing all women are is soft in the head. Arya did move forward to finish her work, and she fought off the urge to jam her steel needle in his shoulder as part of the process. You're unmarried, a baroness, and you have a little sister to support, he said. I wonder if you would make a wife. Arya ignored him. I have it in mind to marry, and I think maybe you'll do. You seem a bit smarter than the average girl, and tis said that you'll know the pup by the... I know the saying, she said sharply. But I've no interest in marrying anyone, least of a man who equates me with a female dog. I know you've no real intention of marrying me. You have all of London to hunt in, and why should you not want a big dowry to go with the biddable wife you bring to your bed? She stepped back and began putting away her vials, scissors, and thread. Oh, I've had them all. All those fine women. But they have their airs and graces, and their hired mighty attitudes. I've no need of their money or their land.
I'm happy as I am. I want a country wife. Well that's not me, she said. I was born and raised here in town. As if this isn't the country, he replied. And I thought you were a witch. I have a wood. It's hundreds of acres long and wide. I've a big house too. It is ever so much more than ten guineas. Do you want it? Arya stared at him. Ah, you know a bargain when you hear one, he said slyly. Why would you want to marry me? She asked. It was hard to fathom, even as she said the words, that should a thing could be possible. I am of an age to marry, and I want a wife that won't trouble me much. Not a woman with a grand title and a big dowry and a lot of expectations about going to London every season. You're just enough of a lady, with just a little bit of a title, and I think you'll be a happy addition to my comfortable country house. So, you want a servant, not a wife, she said. I want a wife, not a queen, he replied. You are toying with me, she said. You've no intention of marrying me. You've just lost interest in cards and dice and now you intend to harry me as I earn the twelve guineas you'll owe me in three weeks' time. She shook her head dismissively and strode toward the door. Such a waste of both my time and yours. The Viscount watched the prim little miss walk out of the room with her head held high, and mastered the desire to go after her. He was one-armed, nude, and her ministrations to his shoulder and back had left him sleepy after his long bath. Dropping his head onto his pillow, he pulled the soft sheets and wool blanket over him, and then stared into the fire a few feet away. Taking the baroness as his wife was not such a mad idea. He was of an age to get an heir, and he needed one, because he'd see his sniveling little brother in hell before he'd let him inherit the estate and all its income. Henry had indeed slept his way through London, and he'd had any number of other men's wives. He'd had their pretty daughters too. But all that was merely merriment. Marriage was quite another thing. A wife might have expectations. She might have relatives. She might make demands. He wanted a titled woman quite at his mercy, and the little which might quite fit the bill. She had a little sister, not much money, no man to protect her, and apparently no man sniffing about to put a ring on her finger. She was feisty, had a bit of a mouth on her, but she was quite comely and he wouldn't, he thought, mind being both her first and last. And once she had a babe in her, she would become as docile as lamb and quiet as a mouse. That was the way with women. The more children you gave them, the less will they had to annoy you. As he drifted off to sleep, the Viscount found himself imagining his little witch with her soft skilful hands and slender figure in his bed. Why should he not scoop up this pretty English rose from this dirty little town, and make her forever his own? It was only a matter of publishing the bans. Chapter 3 Arya accepted her two guineas from the Viscount with an odd mixture of gratefulness and resentment. He sat before her bare-chested, a broad grin on his face, and he said, Are you saving your pennies lest I say, in a week, that you've lost our wager? If you exercise exactly as I have shown you, when was exercise part of our bargain? You were to heal me. Now you ask me to heal myself, he said. She turned away from him, reaching for a length of cloth to wipe off the stinging, numbing fluid she'd used to loosen his muscles so she could examine him. Has it occurred to you that I could well violate our little agreement? He asked. He slipped off the table and positioned himself between her and the door. In fact, I could well violate you. Do you no longer desire my help? She asked, her back still to him. I have no desire to truck with cheats. The Viscount stepped forward, put his hands on either side of the counter next to her, and smiled when she turned around in surprise. I want you to marry me, he said firmly. You're alone in the world, with no one to stand up for you, with a sister to support, and not a dowry between you. It is madness for you to refuse me. Arya didn't know where to look. His sky-blue eyes were too piercing to confront, his massive chest made her think of indecent things, and every word he said was true. You find me attractive, he said. That is written all over you. Just because you say a thing does not make it so, she said archly, wishing she did not sound so much like someone's old maid of a governess. 
he moved his leonine head close to her ear and whispered, his breath stirring her hair. But you do want me. It took every ounce of discipline in Arya's body not to turn her head to kiss him. She'd had ample opportunity to study him. His body had become familiar to her. She was used to the smell of him, equal parts soap, tobacco, sweat and alcohol. She thought he smelled like the man he was, urbane, callous, practiced at seduction, and used to getting his own way. But I do not love you, she replied. I am not even sure I like you. So much the better, he said with a smile. Love, whatever it might be, fades far too quickly in women. Desire, now that can rage for years. A woman can hate a man, can want him dead, and still want him between her legs. Arya tried to duck under the Viscount's arm, but it captured her instead. In an instant, he had her up on the table he had just been on, and he was standing between her parted legs. Only her many skirts and his trousers set them apart. Let's have this out, he said. Marry me and you'll be safe for the rest of your life. You'll never go hungry, and your sister won't either. You'll have a house and wood of your own, sons and daughters to raise, and all my wealth. It's not enough, she said. I need something more. He cocked his head to one side and looked at her quizzically. Do you? He asked. With his free hand he pulled her head down, and their lips met. A spark of pure fire shot through Arya, rising from between her legs, into her mouth, shocking her with its ferocity. His endless requests to marry her, the intimacy involved in treating him, the promises he made, had all put her into a state where she did find him attractive. She knew she didn't love him, knew he was nothing but arrogant, handsome, rich, and cruel, but she wanted him in an animal way that made no distinction between good and evil. Let me put a baby in you, he said when he broke their kiss. He whispered the words. Don't you want that? Isn't that what you've always wanted? Isn't that what you've been waiting for? To be stretched and filled in just the right way? Imagine it. Think how much you'll change. Then he was kissing her again, and one of his hands was on her leg while the other found her breast. Her head reeled. Of course she wanted children, a family and a home of her own, something more than the endless fear and want she'd endured for so long. You'll give me a son. You'll give me a fine brace of boys to put to work, with a bluff firstborn to lead them. As he spoke, his head was near her ear, and the hand on her leg was working its way up under her skirts. Please, don't, she said, trying to desperately to capture his relentless hands. You have to stop. Then give in, he whispered. Let me publish the bans. In a score of days we'll be married, you'll be safe as can be, and in a couple of months more my boy will be on the way. Make us both happy, Baroness. Make your sister safe. All you have to do is give in. Yes, she said. Her eyes were closed and her heart was pounding. Yes, fine, I'll marry you. She didn't love the Viscount, but what of it? She didn't love living here in this tiny little town, scratching out a living, wandering from day to day, week to week, if she and Sophia would have enough to eat or a place to sleep. So she would marry, as every woman would in her circumstance. And if marrying a wealthy man she didn't love turned her into a whore, so be it. Marrying for money wasn't the worst sin a woman could commit, was it? It was certainly a sin she knew she could forgive herself for. The Viscount kissed her then, taking possession of her as surely as if he had clapped her in irons. She stopped fighting him, and soon felt his calloused fingers stroking her thighs before rising higher to caress her sex. Arya knew where babies came from and understood how they were made. A doctor's daughter, she might almost be a midwife for all the babies she had seen born. She had even contemplated making that her trade, but the births she'd seen go wrong had haunted her for ages. But while she understood the mechanics of reproduction, she had never felt the fierce hunger that came from wanting a man, of wanting to surrender to one. She could not understand how the Viscount could have engendered such a need in her and yet he most assuredly had. Slowly, he abandoned his assault. He stepped back from her and studied her, eyes roving from her heaving breast to her open mouth, from her widespread legs to her glassy eyes. 
Yes, it's time to walk to the church and chat with the deacon, he said. We'll tell him to publish the bans for three Sundays, and marry us in the afternoon a day later. He won't wonder that you've said yes so soon, or that you hardly know me. He'll see you, ready to rut, and know you're already mine. If you talk like this, I'll change my mind, she said, fighting for some kind of control in this new and all-encompassing relationship. I'll bend you over this table here and now and never take you to the altar, he replied. A bargain has been struck and it will be honored in full. Are we agreed? He helped her down from the table, then pulled on his shirt, and led her through her shop and out the front door to the street. As they paraded to the church, Arya could feel hundreds of eyes upon her. She was well aware that almost no one in town now believed that she was merely caring for the Viscount. His many visits to her shop, her visits to his room at the inn, all had sullied her character in the eyes of these people forever. How ungrateful they were! She had worked alongside her father for so long. Her care had saved a few of them from death during the epidemic. Her work washing their bodies, boiling their water, cooking them wholesome food, had all played a role in keeping them alive. And yet they still felt worthy to judge her now, when she was all alone, in the grip a man that would stop at nothing to have her. Well, she would no longer allow herself to care what they thought. Sunday they would hear the announcement of her wedding, and in a few short weeks they would see her married. The day after that, she would be gone. As the Viscount led Arya into the little church she'd attended since birth, she felt the weight of the world suffocating her. Her mother and father were buried in the churchyard. Losing them, in retrospect, had cost her everything. If her father had survived, she might have married for love. If her mother had survived, she wouldn't have been the sole source of support and comfort for her fourteen-year-old sister. She might have found some kind of way forward. The deacon, whom she suspected of having rushed into his vestments after peeking out them from the vestibule, looked very serious. And why should he not? This grey-haired, balding old man had known her for a lifetime. To have her scooped up by a visiting viscount in a handful of weeks. It was not to be thought of. But then, Henry was indeed a viscount. He was a peer of the realm, and who had the courage to defy such a man when he had laid his hands on something he wanted? Certainly not a man of the cloth. The deacon's eyes ran up and down Arya's body, and she knew what he saw. A young woman, lost in lust, handing herself body and soul to a stranger. Nevertheless, when the deacon asked her if she was truly ready to marry this man, to be joined with him in the eyes of God, to honor and obey him until her last breath left her body, she said that she was. I love him, she said when prompted. He is a good man who will take care of both Sophia and I. I know we all will be content. And of course, every single word was a lie, but her bargain was made. Whatever Henry asked her to do, she would do, and whatever he asked her to sacrifice, she would surrender. Chapter 4 Are you truly happy? asked Sophia as they sat in a little gig outside the church. It was an open-air affair, more of a pony cart than a coach, but it was more than enough to take Arya and her new husband the few streets required to deliver them to her home. Arya turned to look at her pretty little sister. Just as dark as she was fair, every kind of innocent and unknowing, and yet filled with every good wish for her big sister on her wedding day. Of course, she said. Tomorrow we will be setting off for London, and to a whole new life. And you have become a Viscountess, said Sophia. Can you imagine? Before Arya could reply, Henry, her newly minted husband, left the deacon behind, waved at the hundreds who had dropped by the church to see this curiosity of a wedding, and then stepped to the carriage. As he hefted himself up, he made a motion with his hands, and the young women obediently slid apart so he could sit between them. And here we are, he said. He leaned over to give Arya a lingering kiss as the carriage jerked into motion. She knew, as she surrendered to him, that every man, woman, and child in town must be watching. When he finally let her go, Arya saw that Sophia was quite embarrassed. The Viscount, noticing the direction of her gaze, looked at Sophia too. And what about you, little miss? In a year or two, 
it will be time for you to marry. Who shall you have? A prince? A duke? Who shall I give you to? I want to marry for love like my parents did, she said. They were so happy. I can remember. Of course they were, said Henry. Do you like your new dress? We shall have to have many more made for you. Half a hundred I think, in every color. Sophia looked down at her pretty pink gown and said, It is very pretty. Aria looked away. Henry found charming people an effortless exercise, and Sophia was nothing if not an easy mark. She had no reason not to believe in fairy tales. Her sister had fallen in love with a wealthy and attractive man. She would live in a big house. She would make lots of babies. I'll need a few minutes with your sister alone before we have dinner tonight, the Viscount warned Sophia. Dinner? she asked. Aren't we having it at home? We will be eating at the inn, he replied. I have ordered a festive repast. But first we must go home for a little while, if you don't mind. No. Of course. I don't mind at all, said Arya, still entirely lost and confused. She knew nothing of wedding nights, of bedded brides, of lust or desire. I am happy to wait. When they reached the little side door Henry had pounded on so long ago, he stepped out of the carriage and reached for Arya, who let herself be drawn down into his arms. Like a prize from a battlefield, or an animal shot in the field, he carried her into the house and up the stairs, leaving Sophia to get out of the carriage and into the house on her own. Which room is yours? he asked. Or shall I have you in whichever I happen to like best? The first on the right, she said. He opened the door, stepped inside, and kicked it shut behind him. When he dropped her on the bed, she made to stand up but he pushed her back down again. No my lady, he said. I think not. I have to take my gown off. That is my gown, he corrected, as you are my wife. You'll not take it off. You'll be lucky if I let you out of it sometime this week. Using you like the whore you are when you're in that pretty little dress is my fondest desire. By this time, his own clothes were off, and Arya had a moment to admire the set of his shoulders. Perfectly even they were, and both his arms were quite strong. She had earned her guineas, each and every one. Then her eyes drifted lower and she saw the staff he meant to put inside her. Again she tried to sit up, but he pushed her back, and before she could right herself, he was on his knees and he had her by the hips. He wriggled her this way and that until he found his way inside her, then he held her still as he began to thrust. At this every thrust, she felt as if she had burst into flame. Her hand came to her mouth, her breasts, she wanted him everywhere at once. I'll have my way with them too, he told her. Never you fear. I'll teach you every trick in the book, and a hundred more too. You'll be my own little whore, never shared with another man. Arya could say nothing, so fiercely was he using her, and so ardent was her own desire. She did not love Henry. She did not even like him. But she wanted this. Every inch of her wanted him inside her, hurting her. If he killed her now, she would be nothing but happy. It was as if self-loathing and lust had become a single terrible thing. She wrapped her legs around him, her stockinged limbs dragging him deeper into her even as her back arched. Then felt a sudden wetness inside her, heard his gasp of release, and something of her own desire evaporated. When he left her body, she could only look up at him, mystified. Distantly she wondered why women had not the same kind of fulfilling culmination a man did. Then the answer came to her as a matter of course. A woman in such a heat as hers could be used a hundred times by a hundred men. And was that not what nature wanted? For her to be filled to overflowing with seed and for children to come. When she made to get up, the Viscount said, No, my lady. Not yet. I mean to have you from the other side. I've longed to see your bum. Is it so well made as the rest of you? I must certainly find out. The Viscount used her three times before he let her leave the room. When he was done, he gave her leave to use the chamber pot, to brush her hair, and wash her face, but not to cleanse herself below. When he escorted her down the stairs it was early evening, 
and Sophia was sitting all alone in the little bare salon, gazing into a meagre fire. I know we were ever so long, Sophie my dear, said the Viscount. But now we can go to the inn. Aria and Sophia watched Henry celebrate his wedding night with every drunk, wastrel, and gambler in town. Their bawdy jokes and laughing slanders would echo in their ears forever. Aria was struck by how little anyone in the room cared for her or her sister, though she had known most of these men from childhood. Nigh on midnight, Henry walked the pair of them home, laughing and singing wicked songs all the way. After he had ordered Sophia to bed, he ordered Aria up the stairs and into her room. He came to join her, strict, then laughingly extracted her from her filthy wedding gown. Half drunk, he lay beside her on the narrow bed, and smiled in a most proprietary way. My lips, he said as he brushed a finger across her mouth. My breasts, he added as he tugged her nipples. His hand slipped down her flat belly to her sex. My! Do I have nothing of my own? She demanded. My heart perhaps? Or my soul? Henry laughed at her. Do you imagine I place any value in those things? I want your body to use and your belly to put boys in. All the rest is awful on a butcher's block. I do not think I can bear this, Henry, she said. You are so hard, and so cruel, I sometimes fear you mean exactly what you say. Oh, but I do, he said. I mean every single word. One day you'll try to deny me access to what I own, and you'll find I am anything but a gentle man. Shall that be today? Aria let him take her again, heart pounding with the fear that one day she would not be able to endure yet another assault. Then he would hurt her. Henry adored his pleasure, and he adored her pain. Could she give this monster a child? Would she? She knew how to prevent such a thing. But what would happen in a month, in six months, in a year if he thought her barren? Aria watched Henry step out of the shop and saw him walk, with a spring in his step, to the coach that had travelled all the way from Winnesley to collect them. He threw open the carriage door without waiting for a footman to assist him, and slipped inside to sit next to his battered bride. Closing the door, he rapped on the hardwood ceiling with his walking stick. Move on. He called out. Then he turned to Aria. That purveyor of leeches they call a doctor paid a pretty penny for your little shop. Twice what it was worth. I think he was very glad to see you go. You must have been quite a thorn in his side, he said. Oh she was, said Sophia. Half the town came to her when they were ill. My father always said she would make a fine physician. Henry smiled at her. Well, she won't have to take care of anyone but me any more, he said. I have bought all of her all up. I and my children, and of course you, my dear, shall be her only concerns going forward. And in truth, isn't that enough? To care for us is all she was born for. Do you think so? asked Sophia. Isn't it what all women are born for? Henry asked in mock innocence. Won't the man you marry see you in just the same way? Something inside Aria twisted then. She knew at that very moment Henry would never have a child by her. She would die before she allowed that to happen, because she might give birth to a girl. Their bargain had never encompassed the right to twist the mind and heart of her little sister. It had not encompassed permission to rape her over and over again. She would never, could never, allow a man like Henry to call any child she bore his own. Aria squared her shoulders, looked out the window at passing fields, and took stock. Her wedding vows had given her Henry's title, some access to his fortune, and they were carrying her away from that horrible, thankless, miserable little town she had feared she might never escape. The poor, hungry, and desperate Baroness Whitestone had died in that town. The resolute Viscountess Winnesley had risen from her broken bones. Some day soon, Aria vowed to herself, the lusty husband who abused her so merrily would rue the very day he was born. The End If you enjoyed this story, you will very much like the Regency mystery novel Wedding Bones by Andrea Stewart. It continues the story of the intrepid, intelligent, Viscountess Winnesley. You can find it now on Amazon.com.
You can find many more dark romance audio dramas and books at audioiron.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Audio Iron's Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast. You'll find it on Spotify and your favorite podcasting service. The Baroness Whitestone Surrenders, Story and Audio Recording Copyright 2022 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. All music licensed from Pond 5.